This podcast is brought to you by Proton Dealership IT, the cybersecurity and IT experts committed to keeping your dealership safe from cyber attacks. To learn more about how to better protect your dealership, go to info.protontex.com fish. That's I-N-F-O dot P-R-O-T-O-N-T-E-C-H-S dot com slash P-H-I-S-H. Want to dive deeper into the topics you hear about on Daily Drive? We're offering listeners a special offer, 20% off a one-year Automotive News digital subscription. That gets you access to all of our news, information, and analysis made for automotive industry leaders like you. Go to autonews.com slash daily drive promo to redeem. Welcome to Daily Drive for Monday, October 2nd, 2023. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News here in Detroit. And I'm Callan Walker in Las Vegas. Today on the show, GM CEO Mary Barra sharply criticizes the UAW. A judge's ruling marks a significant victory for Tesla. And what a pole-scaling thief stole from a Canadian dealership. Plus, we'll hear from Fermata Energy CEO Tony Pazawatz about the company's work on vehicle-to-grid capabilities. There's an overlap between the energy sector and the transportation sector now. And it's not something that has been a normal working relationship. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. General Motors CEO Mary Barra had strong words after the UAW expanded its strike against GM and Ford. She criticized the union, saying it's clear that there's no real intent to get an agreement. Barra's statement Friday followed the union's decision earlier in the day to expand the strike to two more plants, including GM's Lansing Delta Township assembly plant in Michigan. It builds the Chevrolet Traverse and Buick Enclave large crossovers. Barra said, quote, it is clear Sean Fain wants to make history for himself, but it can't be to the detriment of our represented team members and the industry. UAW President Sean Fain said workers don't enjoy being on strike, would rather be doing their jobs, and are not on the picket line to grab headlines. The UAW strike against the Detroit Three is now in its 18th day. About 25,000 UAW workers are currently on strike. That's about 17% of UAW membership at the automakers. Meanwhile, about 4,000 workers represented by the UAW reached an agreement with Mack Trucks just before midnight on Sunday. Mack Trucks is owned by the Volvo Group. The tentative agreement must still be ratified by the UAW rank and file. Terms were not immediately disclosed. Mac President Stephen Roy said they would deliver significantly increased wages and continue first-class benefits for company employees and their families. A California federal judge has ruled that a group of people who own Tesla cars must pursue claims that the company misled the public about its autopilot features in individual arbitration. The ruling is a significant victory for Tesla. It means the company will not have to face class action claims on behalf of much larger groups of vehicle owners. A U.S. district judge said four Tesla owners who filed a proposed class action last year had agreed to arbitrate any legal claims against the company when they accepted its terms and conditions while purchasing vehicles through a Tesla website. Tesla and lawyers for the plaintiffs did not immediately respond to requests for comment on Monday. The lawsuit accuses Tesla of repeatedly making false statements indicating that its advanced driver assistance systems technology was on the verge of delivering fully self-driving vehicles. The plaintiffs claim 
that Tesla's technology has been unreliable and has led to accidents, injuries, and deaths. Tesla has denied wrongdoing. In other Tesla news, the automaker missed market estimates for third-quarter deliveries today as planned upgrades at its factories forced production halts. The EV maker handed over about 435,000 vehicles in the three months to September 30th. That's down nearly 7% from the preceding quarter. Tesla said its target to deliver 1.8 million vehicles this year remained unchanged. Across the U.S. border, Sweden-based battery cell maker Northvolt has committed more than $5 billion to build its first North American battery manufacturing site, which will be in Quebec. Company CEO Peter Carlson joined top government officials last week to confirm a site just east of Montreal as the location of the plant. The company did not point directly to which automakers the new cell plant will supply, but Carlson said Northvolt has booked $55 billion in global orders from Audi, BMW, Porsche, Volvo, and truckmaker Scania. And finally, another story from Canada, a massive Canadian flag that's been flying over a General Motors dealership on Vancouver Island for decades has been stolen. Employees at Laird Wheaton Chevrolet Buick GMC found metal shavings around the base of the pole, suggesting it was the work of a well-prepared thief. The dealership's general manager told a TV station that pulleys 20 feet from the ground appeared to have been cut with a grinder. The dealership's surveillance cameras didn't capture what happened. The flag is 30 feet by 15 feet and considered a landmark. The replacement cost is estimated at $1,500. Canadian, of course. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, all right. GM CEO Mary Barra had some strong words for the UAW last Friday night, claiming that the UAW has no intent of reaching a deal. Is there truth to her comments? It's absolutely the point of view that we're hearing from the automakers. They're very frustrated. You know, the exchange of offers and counteroffers has been incredibly slow. Fain has been very active outside communications, but they're feeling like there's not enough going on at the table. And a lot of this really builds on the leaked messages from uh, about a week and a half ago, uh, where Fain's communications director had said they wanted to, you know, wound the image of the companies for months. Uh, there's definitely a feeling on the company side that they just want to drag this out. Interesting stuff. Coming up, we'll hear more about the subject that is getting more and more attention in the electrification age the capabilities of electric vehicles to send power back and forth from the grid. We'll hear from Fermata Energy CEO Tony Pazawatz next on Daily Drive. The auto industry's shift to carbon neutrality is here and it's accelerating. But is it enough? This is a moral imperative, an economic imperative, a moment of peril, but also a moment of extraordinary possibilities. No more hesitancy. No more excuses. No more waiting for the others to move first. There is simply no more time for that. Driving to Zero is a new podcast series from Automotive News that looks at the auto industry's roadmap to carbon neutrality. We take a big picture look at the environmental, political, and social trends pushing the move toward a greener future. And we pull back the curtain on how these decisions are being made at the highest levels. 
I said, you know, the, the headline that you need is is GM believes in an all-electric future. And I think Dan Ammon and Mary Barra pretty much said the same thing, which is, is like, but, but we, we don't. Spoiler alert, they came around to that idea. Find out how and much more. I'm Jake Neer. Join me and Automotive News Executive Editor Jamie Butters on Driving to Zero, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Email phishing happens every day. Cyber criminals are out to trick your employees and coworkers into handing over valuable information that can compromise your dealership through impersonations, fake giveaways, and urgent emergency requests. All it takes is one click to shut down everything. Phishing is the leading cybersecurity concern for dealerships. Without the proper training and protection, your business is left vulnerable to ever-evolving attacks. One day you click an email, and the next thing you know, you get a call from your IT guy. Your email has been compromised, shut down immediately. Stories of attacks and their consequences come flooding in every day. And all it takes is one click to shut down your dealership. You have enough to worry about as it is. Don't add getting hacked to the list. Let Proton Dealership IT help ensure you are fully protected and learn how at info.protontext.com fish. That's I-N-F-O P-R-O-T-O-N-T-E-C-H-S dot com slash P-H-I-S-H. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. Electric vehicles are changing the landscape of the auto industry in ways that go far beyond powertrains and emissions. The powerful batteries that EVs depend on for propulsion also unlock all kinds of new possibilities for car companies and energy suppliers in tandem. While EVs could prove to be a major drain on the electrical grid, many experts and industry insiders think they could help revolutionize how the grid works. Fermata Energy is one of many companies hoping to get in early on this new electric ecosystem. Its vehicle-to-grid system allows car owners to earn revenue by sending energy back into the grid. The company's CEO is Tony Pazowatz, who spent three decades with General Motors and served as one of the chief architects of the Chevy Volt plug-in hybrid. Pazowatz spoke with Automotive News Tech and Innovation team leader Pete Bigelow on Shift, a podcast about mobility. Here's a piece of their conversation. One of the big problems with electric vehicles, uh, at least in terms of getting them in the hands of many consumers as possible, is the fact that yeah, it might be easy for me in my garage here in my suburban house to to plug in in my own personal garage at night. But people who live in apartment buildings or other kind of multifamily dwellings don't have that luxury, um, which seems like a barrier. But it seems like you are also working with some partners to to counteract that in a really unique way that I've not heard anyone else doing. Can you tell us about your uh, pilot project in Boston? No, Pete, thank, thanks for mentioning that one. Again, there's so many interesting projects that Formata Energy has going on. This one in particular is trying to look at the opportunity that exists uh, because of the economics of vehicle to grid uh, and the prices and expense typically associated with EVs today. Um, we believe in the project in Boston, we worked with <clears throat> our friends at Enterprise and this is the rental car company and, and many other partners, to provide a vehicle for $100 a month to an economically disadvantaged individual as a pilot. And we've had tremendous response from others that want to try this and do this. 
And, and their only requirement for this, and happens to be a Nissan LEAF, there'll be other vehicles in the future. Their only requirement is to plug in between six and eight every day. And um, the anticipated rewards of that are uh, the apartment complex or multifamily dwelling will receive $300, $400 a month, which more than covers the expense and the like and gets more people driving electric vehicles. And uh, we're really excited about it because it, it, it checks a number of different different boxes, making EVs available to others, having um, these dwellings um, provide charging opportunities. And with now more and more bi-directional chargers being confirmed, validated, certified, et cetera, through UL and other agencies, we think this is another tremendous opportunity uh, as it relates to making EV transportation uh, um, affordable, available, and uh, you know, frankly, usable by most every customer. General Motors created this new division just within the last year, I think, called GM Energy, where they're, uh, among other things, working on some Vita X applications and some home storage uh, energy units. Who else? Toyota's doing some stuff with portable hydrogen canisters. We just see a lot of activity with automakers kind of dipping their toes a little bit into the energy realm. And I'm wondering if if there's a convergence happening and if automakers need to, in some sense, become energy companies if if they haven't already. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating looking at the world of the OEMs and looking at all of the change and innovation that's occurred in new mobility and new energy. The thing that it's, it's quite obvious is that when you create and become experts in building, developing, and applying in the, in the propulsion world, um, electrified vehicles that have a big battery, and you talk about the construct I described, that um, the battery has latent and inherent value in it beyond just propelling the vehicle. If you can make it multi-use, um, that's very exciting. And again, many auto companies are realizing that as they see where their horizon will be in the future as it relates to where their revenues and profits may come from, et cetera, et cetera. And what's very encouraging is there, there's an overlap between the energy sector and the transportation sector now. And it's not something that has been a normal working relationship. As much as uh, people often accused us of being in bed with oil companies, uh, Pete, you know, they were making most of the profits during downturns and we were struggling, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I would say it was not a, a symbiotic relationship. So the relationship with energy companies and perhaps overlapping in some of those areas is exciting and intriguing. It just gives us an indication that the stuff that Vermont Energy has been working on for 10 years is now sort of being realized as, okay, this is significant. This is real. And again, with the, 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 the two dozen or so pilots and demonstrations we've done, and thank you for referencing the Boston story that, that's working really well. Matter of fact, in Detroit, we just installed, uh, we have at the New Lab facility, we have a partnership there. We have our brand new charger in New Lab in Brooklyn installed. And so again, we'll be going from demonstration mode to having hundreds of units installed operating with different auto companies in different applications and environments, overlapping in the energy space, um, but also um, allowing us to learn faster than everyone else 
by allowing our software and integration platform to um, tune, enhance, and optimize the economic benefits to the company and to the customer. Tony, I'm curious, you mentioned Fermata is is 10 years old, uh, if not a little bit older. Uh, how, how much of this world did you see on the horizon when you were working on the Vault? Was this all, did this crystallize to you <clears throat> at some point or, or has that come in stages over the past, I, I guess, almost two decades now? Well, I've been accused by some of my colleagues of being maybe five to 10 years ahead. Uh, and that's not always a, a compliment or positive, you know, because if you're not bringing everyone else along, I'll tell you a funny story. So uh, I, I was the, um, the leader of the Chevy Avalanche program, and um, it was a hard sell within General Motors to tell the pickup truck community that I wanted to do a four-door pickup with a short box. And uh, they, they looked at me and said, Tony, pickup truck drivers, they'll never go for that. And um, you look around now, uh, <clears throat> four-door pickups with short boxes are everywhere. Um, so in the Volt program, we had some skunk works going on. When you have a built-in engine generator and a battery, I, I, you, you have backup power already. Again, once we went past, you know, the, the restructuring and the bankruptcy, um, you know, it wasn't as big of a priority. But yeah, to, to your point, Pete, I, I have been looking at uh, and looking outward as to the pieces that need to be put together. And I joined Vermont Energy early on. I thought I said they have the best chance of putting these pieces together. You know, as, as Bezos often says, a, um, a, a, <clears throat> an overnight success usually takes about 10 plus years. And I, I think we're at that point with Vermont Energy. Uh, I'm curious to ask you about the Volt and kind of what you just mentioned. The GM was going through the restructuring at that time that you were working on it. Um, the country was going through the Great Recession uh, as it came to the markets. And I, I guess I'm not just saying this because you're on the podcast. Others others can vouch for the fact that I have said this before, but I feel like the Volt is perhaps the great underappreciated vehicle of of our time, certainly, if not all time. Uh, what was it like to work on that program and see the dawn of this era with that backdrop of, of bankruptcy of a country and, and turmoil? Well, th thanks for, for raising that, Pete. It was probably the most exciting project I ever worked on. And part of the excitement was it was extremely challenging. Uh, there were those that thought, <clears throat> and I, I, I uh, had to make many a trip to D.C. Uh, to effectively tell people GM is worth saving because we're working on this technology and it looks like this technology is real and is the future. Um, it was um, a fantastic team. Bob Lutz and some of the senior leaders at GM allowed us to have almost a startup within the company, within a big company with you know everything about you a bit in, in, in a chaotic state. And so we still have uh, get-togethers, the Volt team and stuff, and um, we always marvel a little bit that when GM retired the Volt, sadly, it was the number one all-time selling plug-in vehicle in U.S. history at that time. Uh, many different awards, people acknowledged and recognized that, and a big risk for, for GM to take. And, and it was a novel approach based on our experience with the EV1 that we wouldn't have all the charging infrastructure we needed, and that most people drove 40 to 50 miles or less a day. The Volt that I had, 80% of the time, it was uh, with electricity uh, from the grid. 
Uh, and again, for the longer trips, when I, we go to the cabin in northern Michigan, okay, we have to stop at a gas station, you know. But the neat thing about that one additionally was there was no – most people, believe it or not, Pete, they um, they charged their Volt with a 120-volt portable cord outlet as opposed to having to additionally pay for the charging. And to this day, I, I smile and I tell people we did the Volt because we knew that charging would be sometimes, in some respects, harder to achieve than the actual delivery of the vehicle. And we were kind of right about that. It's still a problem today. And um, it, 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 the other funny thing I like to comment to people is a, a company like BYD, which is actually the number one selling uh, plug-in vehicle manufacturer in the world, actually sells more PHEVs than they do EVs. And I leave, I leave you with that. Tony Pazowatz is the CEO of Fermata Energy. He spoke with our own Pete Bigelow on Shift, a podcast about mobility. You can hear the full conversation on Shift wherever you get your podcasts. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. Thanks to Automotive News Coordinating Producer Jake Neer and Alicia Anderson. Today's episode includes stories from Nick Bunkley and Lindsay Van Hulley, as well as reporting from David Kennedy with our sibling publication, Automotive News Canada. You can get the latest news on the UAW strike, automaker investments, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.